Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. Is that annoying? Should I just should I start with a no? A you're mo- fine. More hey, you're second guessing it. Don't normal do that. pace. Just a yeah, normal. Just go voice. for it. Hey, hello. This is You Don't Know Lit. Just something like that. Hey guys. Hey guys. Welcome to the show. Hey, Lit Huts. Say it really creepy, like. Hey guys. Welcome. Hey guys. Welcome into my house. You don't know Lit. <laughs> um, take a seat. And um, my two friends, Ian and Joe, are here. They're high school English teachers. Um, and they like they only talk about books. That's all they do. <laughs> As you hear the, the duct tape spooling off the reel. <laughs> this is alienating anyone who wants to listen to upbeat podcasts. So. <laughs> good, good podcasting. Um, every week. Uh, all right, so we're gonna, we're gonna talk about Harper Lee. Yeah. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. You know, now technically, Nick, you know, the joke is, of course, that like when you talk about Harper Lee, there's only one book to talk about, but she did write a second book. Do you know that, Nick? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) There are a few things in this world quite as deflating as when Nick reveals that he does, in fact, know a fact about (laughs) literature (laughs) that we were building up. And then it turns out Nick did know that. You roll the dice often and... I would say the house always wins. <laughs> why are we doing why are we doing Harper Lee's um today as a cop out episode? Because she would have been a hundred and ten years old today. <laughs> Not I don't know quite. why that's funny. Ninety-five. <laughs> yeah. Postmortem birthdays are always super strange to me. Mm. Well, <laughs> like but it does give us one benefit. We okay. can confidently say. That this podcast is, um, mm-hmm. what's the yeah. word? Affirmed? Yeah. Recommended mm-hmm. by yes. Harper Lee. Oh, right. Another postmortem dead. endorsement. Uh, yes. And our show's Fantastic. only endorsed by Dead Celebrity. Endorsed. Endorsed. That's the word I was looking for. Endorsed. <laughs> Got those words we today. To sponsor us as well. What? Um, like if we could get people to, like, that's how NPR survives, right? Like, people sponsor NPR, you know, posthumously. Oh, that's true. They yeah. do it. We're basically like PBS. So we need to get, we need to become friends with some really old rich people mm-hmm. and okay. then wait. And then, <laughs> now this is going to be the hardest step. <laughs> oh, I don't, do we introduce ourselves on cop out episodes? Like, do I say, hello, my, my name is Joseph Holscher. I'm a high school English teacher. And here I'm talking about Harper Lee and the one book she's ever written. That's worth talking about. Yikes. What a review. Um, well, uh, I'm Dr. Ian DeYoung, <laughs> oh. and even though Harper Lee sounds like hobbitry, I am not a doctor of Harper Lee. Uh, mm. I am a high school English teacher, and today, Nick, if you're looking by a book by Harper Lee, well, you <laughs> have one option, and both Joe and I are going to talk about it. So <laughs> I hope you like it. If you don't, again, you don't really have much choice. <laughs> no, it's just the one. Nick, we cannot stress it enough. We are going to talk about one book today. Yeah. One I mean, person, I think we have to book. talk about the other book briefly. Y- yeah, we'll probably talk about two books today. Nick. Okay. <laughs> so this is just a traditional episode then. It's not though, because <laughs> because so often uh, Joe and I are basically like antithetical opposites. He is mm-hmm. of the dark. I am of the light. Right. He Nothing is, in common. 
um, he is he is kind of uh, the the low road, and I am the high road. <laughs> we we spar, right? We we it. have sparred since time immemorial, and we will spar until the quenching of the sun. Yeah. On this occasion, the though, sun. we are united mm. in our okay. belief that there is one worthwhile Harper Lee book, <laughs> and there right. is one book which was published as a sequel, but later revealed to be a shoddy first draft of Harper Lee's one. Right, book. like. There is one Harper Lee book that she published and one documented case of elder abuse that we, that like people bought, right? <laughs> like, hmm. There's one Harper Lee book and one ongoing New York Times investigative journalism investigation into whether or not she was tricked into publishing right. a second book. So Nick, we'll take any questions. So welcome everybody to You Don't Know Lit. Um, yeah, welcome. Hey, Litheads, welcome. I just welcome. did that. You don't have to do it. I was, it was a secondary welcome. I don't know. About every week we normally pick a theme in two books, but uh, every once in a while we like to do cop-out episodes, which we describe as... Um, lazy just, time. Yeah, just lazy time. Mm. Basically, it's like um, we're giving ourselves the week off, except we do basically the same amount of work. Mm. So mm. we're really not... But there's only one book, so we're really not sure what it means. But... Um, we still have some show rules. Uh, rule number one, only unavoidable spoilers, guys. No, or rule number two, omit needless words, Joe. And rule number three, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing which is um, not a relevant rule to the cop episodes, but tradition, you know? So Tradition. Tradition. <clears throat> tradition. Yeah, thank you. There um, it is. So, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Joe. Joe. Hey, Joe, thank you. That was your, hey. that was your cue. Uh, that's actually a little bit of foreshadowing because I'm going to be talking about Fiddler on the Roof in uh, hmm. about two minutes. Two minutes. All right. We'll start the, Ian, start the start timer. That clock. We'll Thank see you. about that. Yeah, and remember, Joe, you are under oath. And if you yeah. have misrepresented in any way, um, the judge will bang his gavel. Yeah. Bang, bang, bang. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mitch, Joe, you brought your me, gavel today, right? Joe, tell me about the book in um, 30 seconds. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Is that what we're talking about? Or are we just talking about Harper Lee? I I have a I have a um To Kill a Mockingbird synopsis. Def- Ian should definitely do it then. Oh, give me it in thirty seconds. Okay, so um, I sat down to write a poem or some limericks or possibly even one of my award-winning raps to mm-hmm. summarize the plot. But um, Harper Lee fans worldwide will be glad to hear that I thought that was way disrespectful weirdly somehow so i'm just gonna tell you normally okay that's time (laughs) yes set in depression era alabama harper lee's only novel to kill a mockingbird explores gender norms social conventions and jim crow racism through the eyes of scout finch its main character as scout grows up she gradually comes to understand the complex and troubling relationships which shape her hometown. Maycomb, Alabama isn't quite as idyllic as it first appears. Um, let's just start off. What does this book get wrong? <laughs> does this book age well? I could talk about that. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about it. I want to know where my, where my mind should be at here. Is this right? You you should like be like boo or yeah. "Ah." Am I kicking down the door with a smile or a frown? Right, right. Yeah, I guess I will say, Nick. Before Ian goes, I will say that there's been a lot of discussion to meet you in the department that I teach in about whether or not we should continue teaching to kill a mockingbird, like whether or not it 
it satisfies what we hope it satisfies as mm. a book. Um, <laughs> and and I our department kicking down a door um, with a smiling face, and that being always scarier than a frowny face. Oh yeah, <laughs> that uh, would be bet. terrifying. Yeah, Joe. Your book, this book is banned at your school. Is that what you said? I did not say that. I uh, huh. it, There are some discussions about whether or not it will remain in the curriculum, though. Okay. In discussion. In discussion. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it has been banned elsewhere, too. Like, why? Well, uh... Can, <laughs> hey, Nick. I wasn't prepared to talk about this. <laughs> Nick, can you guess why? <laughs> Um, probably because of racist reasons. Um, right. I think well, I've read parts of it and I've definitely seen the movie, but like, does the book, is it like Huck Finn? Is there some, uh, there's, there's specifically one word, which shows okay. up a lot. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and is that, is, I would that say the, is that the, the main, the main reason? Are there additional reasons? I mean, I think, I mean, I would say Joe, probably that's the primary reason. Yeah, I think that's definitely the primary reason. Um, the, all of the discussions in our school revolve around like, Hey, if we want to like show this book as a model of, you know, oh, I don't know, anti-racism or whatever, like, should we really be showing a book that is written by a white woman where like the hero is a white man? Like, like, that's kind of like the high minded discussions around it. Yeah. Right. But there's, (laughs) that's there's also, there's also a lot of N words. Right. That's like, Um, yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah. I think it's different from Huck Finn. I had forgotten we had that conver- had the same conversation about Huck Finn. I think it's different from Huck Finn because the the book doesn't just transmit those racial slurs like um kind of straightforwardly. It mm-hmm. it opens conversations about how you shouldn't say that. Um you mean Huck Finn does? No. Huck Huck Finn's just like kind of doesn't really question the legitimacy of a white person slinging around the N word and uh, to kill a mockingbird kind of does like there okay. is a character who uses it and that character is reproved by yeah, like he's a skis bag. Like, like, yeah. Yeah. Like gotcha. that, guy, that guy's a skis bag, a skis bag. Right. And, and specifically like, don't say that not just like, Oh, you're being, you're being low, but like, don't use that word, mm-hmm. which I, yeah, that's different. <laughs> I think I think still the question of so my my take on this is that we really jumped into the deep end first. You guys thought we were going to ramp into it. Um, no, we're we're getting it. Yeah. Okay, let me let me let me we back, back up. Flip okay. cannonballed into it. <laughs> let me. <laughs> this is the equivalent of walking to the end of the of the diving board and just yeah. stepping off. Now take um, us there, Ian, and don't belly flop. <laughs> okay, hey, you stuck the landing on that metaphor. Um, Here comes the Lindy. I don't get it. Uh, so this book is part of a tradition of Southern literature, Southern Gothic literature. There have been other books that do fiction about the South. So as you mentioned, Huck Finn, uh, William Faulkner wrote fiction about the South. Flannery O'Connor wrote fiction about the South. Uh, Margaret Mitchell wrote what has been voted like the America, one of America's best love books, Gone with the Wind, about the South. Um, but these authors, Faulkner, O'Connor, Mitchell, and others, their political messages, their ideologies are kind of under the surface. And this book has a much more upfront kind of presentation of its ideology. It's like saying straight up, there are good guys and there are bad guys. There are 
racists and they're bad. And there's people who are not racist and who in fact defend uh, black people unjustly accused in a court of law. Those people are good. So it's very much like straightforward about its sort of ideology. Let's shift for a moment and Please. talk and talk some trash about the author. Joe, do you want to take the lead on this one? Oh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> if you are here to hear me say anything bad about Harper Lee, you just better tune into a different podcast. Um, okay, you should okay. tune into the Harper Lee hate cast uh, down, uh, down yeah. the road. Um, I only have super nice things to say about Harper Lee or um, at least some pretty fun things. Nick, the first thing that you have to know about Harper Lee. The first thing that you might already know about her is, I I don't know if reclusive is the right word, but she Mm. was very private. So she, uh, like I'm looking right now at the MonroeCountyMuseum.org timeline of Harper Lee's life. And you know how like- fun. You re- yeah, you read a Wikipedia you know, page and it's you check just it like, every morning. Yeah, like yeah, they, I, I have the RSS feed. Um, there's like 10 dates on this timeline. One of them is when <laughs> she was born. One of them is when she met her neighbor, Truman Capote. One of them is when she like there's kind of this flurry of stuff in the early 1960s. Like she published To Kill a Mockingbird. It won a Pulitzer Prize. They made a movie out of it. It won an Oscar. Like like all this stuff. And then there's nothing on the timeline for like 30 years when people basically like presidents essentially started rolling her onto stage and awarding her like medals of freedom and things like that. She was just luxuriating in it all. Yeah. For the rest, for the rest of We've heard life. about someone like this before. Do you remember who that was, Nick? I sure don't. Who was it, Ian? <laughs> Hang on. He's no, che- you don't remember either. <laughs> He's checking his notes. The hell? only name. Do you think I was going to waste some more time than that? <laughs> Give you enough time to finish chewing? The only is Ralph Ellison. The only name that came to mind was okay. Richard Wright, which was Joe's book that week. That was, okay. that was from our, our world famous big city books. Ralph Ellison wrote Invisible Man. Evan was like, wow, Ralph, you're the greatest individual in the history. And then he cruised on those royalties for the rest of his life. Yeah. Well, and. And Harper Lee did kind of the same thing. And to be clear, Nick, just to give you an idea okay, of what it, of how much money you make. I, I th- oh boy, th- this is a little bit gauche, but I always love it. Okay, how much yeah. money so, do you make, Nick? So, can, Nick, if can you write To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah, yeah, okay. guess, 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 Nick, I want you to imagine that you write a book that is adopted by freshmen all over the United States, and it becomes a staple of the curriculum. You sell like Done. forty million copies. Okay, I'm there. I'm there. You will make for the rest of your life about nine thousand dollars every day from that. That's a lot of money. I think that's amazing. (laughs) That's a lot of clams. That's what she averaged, huh? Yeah. So she, so she, um, in 1960, publishes To Kill a Mockingbird after um, kind of a long (laughs) editorial process, and like makes nine thousand dollars a day forever after that. So, guys. I don't know. I don't think I'd write a second book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think most people would. Oh, oh, um, it gives you the it gives you the sort of it gives you the the luxury to to take your time on the next one. I'm reminded of um, man. I got no more names today. Cormac McCarthy. That's right. 
I literally started I literally started Googling the road author because I have no names today. <laughs> I'm reminded of Cormac McCarthy, who like basically had to struggle and scrounge until his novels started becoming successful. They're, like that's one option. The other option is you write a classic of American fiction on your first try and then you sit around for the next 40 years. Right. And let's be clear, like you you can't follow this up. Like we've heard of sophomore slump with, you know, crappy indie bands, right? Like imagine the sophomore slump that comes after To Kill a Mockingbird. So she was just kind of in it for the money is what you're saying. She Harper Lee was in Clearly. it for the money. You heard it here first, Lynette. She's <laughs> kind of a gold digger huh, when it comes to, to writing. <laughs> All right. So, so in lieu of finding like, you know, having this rich detailed timeline of Harper Lee's life, um, instead I've got two like, I don't know. I don't want to call them deep dives, but kind of two little moments from her life that I think are pretty dang interesting. Um, one of them has to do with uh, friend of the show and surely uh, advocate of the show, deceased author Truman Capote. And the other one has to do with. Good guy, good guy. Love that guy. Oh, miss him. And the other one has to do with somebody that you haven't heard of, Nick, but maybe played just as big of a role in Harper Lee's life. Um, A couple called Michael and Joy Brown. Nick, you've heard of Jesus. No, Michael and Joy Brown. Okay. Okay. I want to start with Michael and Joy Brown because it's quick. I think it's quick. We'll be the judge of that. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Anytime um, Joe says it's going to be quick, we'll, yeah, we we'll see. Yeah, we're not optimistic, but we're here for the ride, Joe. <laughs> Take it away. All right. So Harper Lee moves to New York City as many young aspiring- <laughs> The year was 1924. <laughs> Jesus Wait, why Christ. don't we do more of these in New that old timey fashion? Big hitter city. <laughs> oh, well, so the year wasn't 1924. It was Paper 1949. boys ran the streets, <laughs> and there was mud in the road. <laughs> Nick, can you put some of that twangly banjo music behind this that they always do in Ken Burns documentaries? Right. Yeah, a young if you just want a seller named Fritz ran the streets. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. As you were, uh, Harper Lee moves to New York City. Uh, 1949. And she is like a lot of young people in New York City that want to write the great American novel. Okay. Um, she's not doing a lot of writing. Like she finds out it's really expensive to live in New York City and she basically has to spend her day in menial jobs in order to pay the rent. No, oh, that's the worst. Yep. Just the worst. We've been <laughs> so there. So she moved right? to LA to become an actor. Okay. <laughs> We're there. Exactly. <laughs> um, she's Friends with Truman Capote at this time. Litheads, you will, of course, remember that Truman Capote uh, is a childhood friend, next door neighbor, uh, very highfalutin, high literary society, like through a party so famous it has its own Wikipedia page. So she's friends with Truman Capote and she's hanging out in some pretty literary circles, but she's not writing. One year at Christmas, a mutual friend of hers and Truman, Michael and Joy Brown, they have an envelope for her. And in that envelope is how much money she would make in a year at her menial job. And in that envelope is a note that says, here's a year's salary, write whatever you want this year. In that year, she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Wait a minute now. How did they, what had she written before that to, what was the conversation to convince them? Because obviously she. Okay, super good question. Or. Yep. Before she that, just happened to have a, she's like, oh, they're, they're like, how's your day? And she's like, oh, I don't know. I just, I hate my job and I just want to write a book. They're like, your <laughs> okay. wish is our command. I have that- to have an envelope. <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds ridiculous, but as far as I can tell, that's more or less what must have happened. Like, be- <laughs> oh, like before this, awesome. she had done some. New York. 
Yeah, she had done some writing for like her college newspaper before this. She had, um, you know, done like little things, but like before this, she is not published. Like when we say that To Kill a Mockingbird is her only book, we're not kidding, Nick. I gotta ask, are these people getting a cut? Okay, this is the best part. Um, Michael and Joy Brown are relatively wealthy and they make their money, as you could imagine, if you give somebody a year's salary. And they made their money in this thing called the Industrial Musicals. Have you ever heard of anything like this? So it's musicals, okay? It's okay. musicals. I, I think I know where this write- is going. Oh, do you? Because I learned about it literally today. <laughs> well, I, I, no, I, I, no, I don't know what that is by name, but I know that a lot of people just make money by paying artists and then like investing in them. Is that what this is? Okay, no, that's not what this is. All right, let's just okay. move forward. Yep, Michael and Joy Brown, um, he was like a Broadway writer. He wrote songs for Broadway and he worked on, um, oh, 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 like for example, like he worked on Fiddler on the Roof. This is where Fiddler on the Roof comes in, right? It's been two minutes. Yep, <laughs> it's been two minutes. Okay. Amazing. You timed that <laughs> so well, time, Joe. Hey, time flies, litheads, huh? When you're having fun, huh? <laughs> so Michael Brown is, uh, he writes for Broadway, right? And as you can imagine, like when you are an up and coming like writer for Broadway, like composer, you, you know, there's probably fat years and lean years in there. So okay. one of the things that these guys would do in the meantime is they would get hired on at corporations to write what was called an industrial musical. And this is like, there's like this golden age of industrial musicals post-World War II. And what it is, is basically you would write a full-featured play for, say, Ford or Electrolux. And it was a kind of a combination of like a pep rally and a motivational speech and like a, like a you rah rah isn't Electrolux amazing sort of thing. And okay. like- Corporations spent so propaganda, propaganda, internal propaganda, and corporations paid huge for this. So at the time, if you wanted to put on a Broadway show and rent a theater and hire a cast, it would cost you somewhere in the neighborhood, like an expensive show, half a million dollars. Okay. Okay. It was not uncommon for these corporations to spend like $3 million on these shows, like bringing in A-list actors to act in them, hiring like the best people for Broadway to write for them. Um, Nick, can I give you, can I break a little bit off for you? Of, um, love song to an Electrolux. Sure. Are you going to please tell me you're going to sing it? Just to, um, cl- to clarify before you sing, Joe, is this, what's the medium here? It, where is this like work being performed? Like on Broadway and it like, it plugs Electrolux or like, is it like an, like we're having a company picnic? Yeah, or we're, we are having, uh, uh, our annual shareholders meeting we're having an annual company picnic (laughs) okay they used to really go all out for these things yeah Mm. really great um hot dogs and a-list actors a-list actors three million dollar productions so love song to an electrolux this is the perfect matchment all sweet and serene i formed an attachment i'm in love with a lovely machine or Mm. later um for (laughs) edsel Uh, I'm sorry. In a song that he wrote to spur on the sales force of a car company called Edsel, 
You got to be a good greeter, sell the car. You got to turn on the heater, sell the car. And when you get to St. Peter, sell the car, sell the Ed, sell the Edsel for 59. Um, he also wrote the wonderful- <laughs> Give this man $3 million. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all it took. I want to time travel back to then. I got to get back to that revolution. So- he also wrote one called The Wonderful World of Chemistry for DuPont, which I, it like <laughs> rang a faint bell. Oh my gosh. I like the, can we just pause here and, 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 and revel in the fact that they basically just wrote jingles? <laughs> that, that was it. He wrote jingles. Like I would assume they'd be like connected with some sort of narrative, but it, okay. I'm reading in his obituary. One of the lines Run around with thunder platter. Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> <laughs> oh. In his obituary, one of the lines says, for DuPont, Mr. Brown created the wonderful world of chemistry, a show that in all likelihood has had the greatest number of performances of any musical in history. So like Phantom of the Opera, never heard of it. Wonderful world of chemistry. Les Mis, never heard of it. Wonderful world of chemistry, right? Like, like this was a huge thing. Were they performing like multiple times a day for years? Uh, his obituary doesn't say. <laughs> Dang it. I'm just very confused did, about the logistics of this. And we're so far afield from Harper Lee. But. This oh, is okay. so, this is just by far his longest story ever. And <laughs> well, Joe, I, well, well, here's where the good is news. this going? Story's but, over. We, okay, so where it's going is this guy made a ton of money doing this and was able to essentially be the single-handed patron for To Kill a Mockingbird and Harper Lee writing gotcha. To Kill a Mockingbird. That's the connection. Like, that's it. He made a boatload of money. He, he was her patron. <laughs> So, so Ian, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He gets a cut. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Um, Ian, why don't you, uh, why don't you tell us something? Are you going to talk about the book? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk about the book. Were you going to talk about the overt message? <laughs> I, I will. I will talk about, I'll talk more about the overt message. All right. So you asked at the top of the show or near the top of the show, mm-hmm. um, about like how this would hit today. Like, what yeah. would this be? Does this would this work up? today? Does it hold up? Right, exactly. Does it work? So I've mentioned already that I think this is part of a tradition of Southern literature, but it goes farther kind of politically in, in its message, its overt message than other works of Southern literature. Um, the politics of this, which are it, a quick refresher, racism is bad. Uh, the politics of this are really optimistic, but I'm not sure this would fly if it were published today. So it, it's a book that deals with racial injustice and it's got a pretty, like at the core of it, there is a pretty unjust thing that happens and that's a downer, but this is, and maybe Joe, you could, you could correct me if you think I'm wrong, but this, this has some hope to it. Like the book offers some hope for societal change which is an interesting kind of it it sits interestingly with the whole injustice racism at the heart of it but it does say listen there is a hope people can get better the society which is racist can get better Uh, maybe the next generation won't be so dreadful maybe people in power are less racist than we thought they were there's a character who were introduced and she just seems dreadful and over time we realize she's not quite so dreadful Does the book say that you have to do something or is it more like, now you wait? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's kind of a little bit like like, now you wait. If good, if good white people teach their children not to be racist, 
eventually racism will go away. Well, right. And let's be clear. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like that is like, that was essentially like my education growing up. Like I remember, I have a distinct memory of sitting in a, oh, I don't know, an elementary school classroom. Okay. Third grade sticks out in my mind. Learning about Dr. Martin Luther King for the first time, learning about racism and thinking to myself as a third grader, well, this is great. Like now that we know, like now that they're teaching us about this, by the time right. I'm an adult, there's not going to be racism anymore because racism we know, like they taught right. us about it. We They've get it. Taught, they're teaching this across America. Yeah. Like so every therefore, kid is everybody will this. be reacting like I am yeah. and racism will be done. Right. So, ah, <laughs> oh, dang. Yeah. And that clearly worked out great. <laughs> I think it's important for us to, okay, to so kind of. So what we're saying, the great social experiment is that this book doesn't work. <laughs> Well, let's be clear. No, let's 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 be clear here. Um, and I know Joe just said that, but let me be even more clear. Uh, it is a good thing to teach your children and assorted, you know, nephews and nieces that racism is bad. We're not. I don't think we need to say that, but I'm glad you did. Yeah, we did say it. So, like, that's not that's not that's not it's not wrong to teach uh, to to sort of teach kids that racism exists and it's a bad thing. But I think. The the flaw is believing that's all you have to do and that eventually things will get better. And the book doesn't quite like make this claim. There's a powerful argument in the book about like there's also a bunch of white people who are just kind of lazy and scared who maybe mm -hmm. don't have racist beliefs, but they're also not going to rock the boat. So it's 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 clear eyed about sort of human nature, but it's also saying hopefully the next generation will be better. And I think. People, if this is published today, people might not like this storyline because waiting for people to change hasn't seemed to help. Like, <laughs> yeah, things well, are it still bad. It, it's, it's the anti-racist stuff, right? It's like, it's the anti-racist, like, um, narrative. And I feel like that's new. Is that new or am I just an idiot? I think I heard the word anti-racist for the first time within the last six months. When you say, say anti-racist, what do you mean? Uh, the sentiment that... It's not enough to just sit your kids and tell them to don't be racist. Right. There has to be like a, a, a proactive message Take action. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Some sort right. of action or, or proactive um, POV. Right. And and I think so like this is this is one element that this this book, if it were published today, this book might not like people might say, well, it doesn't go far enough. The other thing that it does, it does have uh, what's referred to as the white savior trope where mm -hmm. a powerful person who is white comes sweeping in and saves or tries to save the innocent black person. And um, that's like the, the route to long-term harmony is white people doing the saving. And that's that's got some, some issues with it as a storyline. I think for this book, it's fine. Like Atticus, our main, one of our main characters, he's a lawyer and he is in a position of power and he's white. So mm -hmm. it, it, it works for this book. But I think that would also... If it were published today, it wouldn't fly. But to get back to your question, does this hold up? It holds up, yes, because it was published in 1960 and because it's Harper Lee's only novel and because like there's such a mythos attached to it. I think people still appreciate this book. It was voted like America's favorite book. They did a whole Best poll book. and stuff. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, I, I, like, I, thought, like I saw something like they, it was they, the they book went around of to the literally century. every American and they say, What's the best book? And mm -hmm. people said this. They didn't say like the Bible or the Declaration of Independence, which isn't a book. <laughs> that famous um, book. Right, 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 right. 
or the back of a Tootsie Wrap a wrapper. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I think this book has ha, has certainly some flaws, but it's it's got a legacy, and that's not hmm that that's hard to shake. It's hard to invalidate that legacy. Do you feel like it was a struggle to survive the last year plus of lockdown? Do you wish you had like some kind of thing to to help you a guide as it were to help you survive the last to survive to survive? I think maybe I was talking uh, to the lit heads with you. I'm suggesting like, that we should trying to be your hype man. Well, Nick, you got to have a lot more energy. Do you even want to survive lit heads? You got to at least match my energy level. Listen, oh, hey, lit heads, hey Hey, you need survival guides, and fortunately for you, there are two high school English teachers and Nick who are gonna help you with that. Maybe good if you guys are okay uh, with it. If I wanna, if I was in a situation where the only thing I needed to focus on was survival, just surviving, just Mm -hmm. making it to the next day, man, I'd go right to the high school (laughs) and I'd kick down all the doors and and look for a, a. High school English teacher. I need an English teacher. (laughs) I need an English teacher. Um, Now, what kind of survival are we going to learn about? Because there's plenty of ways to survive. Mm. I am bringing a book called Blueprint for the Revolution. How to use rice pudding, Lego men, and other nonviolent techniques to galvanize communities, overthrow dictators, or simply change the world. This is a book about how to survive and how to overthrow oppressive dictatorships. I need a survival guide to get through that title. My goodness. Holy cow, Joe. Listen, hey, so I think um, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go a little bit avant-garde here. Uh, I recently watched a a film, which by this, by the time this airs, may or may not have already won Best Picture at the Oscars. Was it the Schneider Cut? The Schneider Um, Cut. Yeah, it's the Schneider Cut. I'm going to bring the novelization (laughs) of Jack Snyder's Schneider Cut. How does how does snide in America today? No, Snyder um, style. <laughs> no, I uh, I saw the film. I saw the film film uh, Nomadland, which you should all go watch. It's an amazing, beautiful movie, and it turns out, uh, joy to my little English loving heart. Turns out this is based on a book. So naturally, I went and looked up the book, and the book is ah, uh, it's as good as the movie in a different way. So I'm going to bring Nomadland: Surviving America in the 21st Century. It has "surviving" right in the title, and it's a short title. So you know, yeah, and <laughs> it's a good one. It's an amazing, beautiful book. Uh, Joe, did Hyper Lee write this book? Oh, Nick. Your what segues a, a, are amazing. Nick, that was actually let me just say your segues that. are amazing. <laughs> Thank oh, you. So, Nick. I practice them at night. A couple of weeks ago, I came in and I talked about Truman Capote, right? And as part of my notes for that show, you might have heard, it's a very common thing that every once in a while, people will say, hey, Harper Lee, she was childhood friends with Truman Capote, this super prolific, super literary dude. She wrote one book in her life and never wrote another one. Wouldn't it make a lot of sense if 
Truman Capote actually wrote that book, or maybe if Truman Capote heavily edited that book. And Nick, when I came in for my Truman Capote book week, like I, I, I did the research. I watched the YouTube videos. I read the Wikipedia articles, right? All, and I, all the I, good I was, sources. All the best sources. <laughs> and I was ready to come in here. I, I was thinking in my prep, I was thinking, I'm going to come in here. I'm going to blow this wide open. I'm going to like yeah. lay a case for like Harper Lee did not write To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm oh, going to kick this down door with a... Sm- <laughs> Door kick down this, with a smile. Kick this down door with a smile. <laughs> kick this down door. Well, Nick, what I learned in my research is not only am I so sure that Harper Lee did write To Kill a Mockingbird, I think there's a reverse conspiracy theory that I would like to take a moment to bring to light. Ooh. Oh, this sounds like it'll be quick. Um, okay. <laughs> Hey, I'd like to, at, at 38 minutes in, unwrap an entire co- conspiracy theory right here on this shortened episode. This abbrevi- I thought this would be a good time. Cool. Um, <laughs> welcome to part two, if you don't know, let's Harper Lee episode. Um, part two of 38. <laughs> we'll be covering the mood landing. In today's episode, we're going to look at that breakfast Harper Lee had that one time. <laughs> the critics think about it the year was 1924 Uh, so now i want you to imagine what it's like being in my classroom when like students don't talk back like this i just get to say what i want joe is this the greatest conspiracy in literature oh there's probably better ones it's the one okay. I'm, it's, it's the one I'm most excited about fair, right fair now. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> Tell us your story about the history of conspiracy theories. Harper Lee publishes To Kill a Mockingbird. It's kind of out. It's getting published. It goes away. And Truman Capote writes this book called In Cold Blood, and he needs some editorial help on it. Harper Lee, he hires on as an assistant um, to like basically come with him to Alabama. Nope. I read this book to come with him to Kansas. Thank you to come with okay. him to Kansas and like Can you interview people. Cancel his win from that week. <laughs> I don't, I just, I've already stopped listening. <laughs> <laughs> so Truman Capote hi, hires Harper Lee as like a, an assistant on this book. Well, Truman Capote gets to Kansas and the people of Kansas kind of hate Truman Capote. Like he is like, a little bit garish. He's flamboyant. He has this incredibly high He's voice. Polarizing. He's polarizing. So Truman yeah. Capote is showing up being like, hey, I want you to tell me all about this horrible murder that happened in town. And people are like, yeah, we don't like you don't really put us at ease. Like we don't want to talk to you. Harper Lee, on the other hand, by all accounts, people loved like she was kind of like this good old like good, like good like earthy girl who like would sit down and drink whiskey with him and chat and like people absolutely loved her like um years and years and years after people fondly remembered harper lee coming to town so probably had an accent right harper lee probably had an accent yeah for sure i mean like oklahoma oklahoma is like west slash south and that's something that's going to open doors if if you have like a a new yorky sounding guy coming around saying what do you know about this murder see like yeah. that's 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 not that was my New York accent. Right, that's but I, but I, I do think like I, like I do think Harper Lee felt familiar to them. Like they understood who Harper Lee was. And she in the very early stages of this wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes for these um for the Cutter murders at the time. She goes her work 
by Truman Capote goes almost totally unacknowledged in In Cold Blood. And basically what happened is while Truman Capote is writing In Cold Blood, To Kill a Mockingbird blows up. Like, absolutely blows up. Harper Lee becomes, like, the most famous author on the planet. She wins all these prizes for it. They make a movie out of it starring Gregory Peck. And Truman Capote, by all accounts, got very jealous of his friend Harper Lee. Yeah, he got very jealous of his friend Harper Lee. And uh, they suffered a rift in their relationship that they never quite bounced back from. Um, So, I, in summary, (laughs) 42 minutes in. How does that prove that she wrote it? Oh, okay. I want to be clear. I am not saying that she wrote In Cold Blood. I am saying that In Cold Blood does not exist in the form that it is in. Maybe never happens without Harper Lee working as a literary assistant, without Harper Lee putting her foot in the door of the homes of these just normal Kansas people, without Harper Lee's like copious note taking and interviews and things like that. So she was a co writer. <laughs> She was. She co-wrote it. She ghost-wrote that's your, it. That's your. That's your theory. That's my conspiracy theory. Harper Lee co-wrote in Cold Blood. I mean, this this happened a lot. If you look at the uh, acknowledgments pages of a many many pieces of kind of investigative or researched books uh, written in the 1900s, you'll see like. Um, You'll see acknowledgments of like, oh, to my wife or to this, to my to my sister for her for her typing of the manuscript. And oftentimes um, that that was code for they did a bunch of the research and basically should be co-authors, but I'm not going to credit them. So, yeah, but Mm. make but make me but make me (laughs) (laughs) exactly come at me. Um, (laughs) How much dollars per day did that couple get? I, I don't, I don't Nick know. Nick really fixated on this couple. It had to have been more, right? I don't think so. I think Harper Lee. No? I mean, come on. She made like $3 million a year from To Kill a Mockingbird. Whew, we got to get going mm-hmm. on the Butler book. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, remember true. now, this is a B- Harry Potter world. Harry Butler. <laughs> Butler. <laughs> Now, just Wait, I, I don't just, think I, I understand what you're our, saying. Our Butler book, real quickly. I just need to recap this. Can I recap it? Okay, it is a Butler Butler based murder mysteries Butler genre saga right. uh, that takes place as fan fiction of Fast and the Furious. Mm-hmm. Yep, starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson right. as CG is, is young J Jeff Jeeves. Yep. Yeah, our main character is JF J Jeff. J. Jeff Jeebs. Jazzy Jeff Jeebs. said. Yeah. And I don't know where I was going with this. It was, I, I feel, do you have this written down? That was a lot of detail no, you should. just grabbed. That this is concerning. You are, yeah. you're the, your brain, your feeble brain is the archive for this <laughs> award winning, future award winning project, Nick. Hmm. That's a mistake. Your waffling is concerning. And I love um, waffles. I think but I I'm got, concerned by these waffles. Who there was some uh some writer who said it might have been um um Stephen King that said he doesn't write he doesn't write ideas down because the bad ones just they just disappear. The only the good ideas. You remember the good ideas. All the bad ones disappear. So he never wrote stuff down. I don't think yeah. it was Stephen King. Somebody else, some other because writer. Stephen King definitely wrote down a lot of his bad ideas yeah, and then they got published. He in fact wrote everything. 
down. He just I mean, never he, stopped. He is right now. <laughs> right now, he's thinking of things and writing them down. He's did been you doing know it for like you 50 can, years. Did you know, like, the mansion that he lives in in Maine? Um, in uh, Bangor, Maine. He lives in, like, this Victorian mansion and where he did, like, most of his writing. And uh, now, I believe now or coming soon, um, you can rent out his room for like the weekend if you're a writer to just Ugh. write your write your book. Wow, of course. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It's also kind of gross. Like I feel like, <laughs> like yeah. I don't know. 100%. So he well, he has a really famous it, get, book, but we don't. But we Joe, don't have to talk about this, Joe. Now. Yeah, as yeah. imagine if you will a world in the mm-hmm. future where you don't know lit has become the only podcast anyone listens to not because we've mm-hmm. destroyed all the other podcasts, but because we're so yeah. good and loved because right. of our destiny. Right. Imagine somebody comes to you and says, please, Mr. Joe, can I please use your podcasting Mr. studio? Mr. Because Joe, I want Mr. to tap Mr. into the magic. <laughs> I want to use your microphone. I'll pay you $30,000. <laughs> Would you say no to that? No, I'd say hell yeah. It's nine thousand dollars a day to rent $9, my podcasting booth. <laughs> I feel That's like my new people, benchmark for success. If I'm not making Harper Lee money, I feel like people are just going to pay thirty thousand dollars to have sex on Stephen King's desk. I think that's all oh. that's happened in that room. <laughs> that that no. escalated quickly. It's just uh, only one person at a time is allowed in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King's standing by the door, sitting by a chair, sitting in a small wooden chair by the door, looking strangely at you as you walk Please out. don't have sex on my table. <laughs> <laughs> it's like those books that people leave at Airbnbs with all the rules. Um, I bet I bet Ian's going to want to leave us with something like a message. I mm. feel like he's really got something to say something else. Do you guys have something else to say? I, I do have something else to say. I, I'll talk about two things that I like about this book because we haven't really done that. We've talked about the um, we've talked a lot about Joe's time on the farm. <laughs> we've, talked, <laughs> <laughs> we've talked a lot about overt messaging, but I'm going to say some literary things here. OK, first of all. Uh, this is not necessarily an, uh, a recommendation for Nick, I think, but it's just a recommendation for you, Litheads. <laughs> it's fucking <Wow>. offensive. <laughs> yes. This book incredibly this book shows <laughs> This book shows that Harper Lee is a master of understatement. So um, she doesn't always come out and say things like, um, and, and then J. Jeff Jeeves ripped off the sleeves of his tuxedo and it was another tuxedo underneath. She doesn't really like double tux. A lot of these cool moments in the book, and there are plenty of them. She sort of suggests rather than mm-hmm. rather than saying straight out like this happened. So there's an ex- example when our main character Scout gets in a fight with her cousin, and she punches him, and they get in like this tussle. But Lee doesn't focus on like, oh, I threw a left hook and he dodged, and then I uppercut into his stomach. It's very much like. You have to kind of read past it and then go back and piece together. Oh, oh, she punched him in the in the jaw so hard that her knuckles split. That's what happened. Like, yeah, she kind of Lee kind of suggest and in the climactic moment of the book, which I'm not going to spoil because of rule number two or whatever it is. It's a masterclass <laughs> in this. One. Like, it's not sh- it's not telling you what happens. It's kind of showing and suggesting what happens. And I think this is really cool because it mimics how children are growing in their awareness of the world around them. 
Mm-hmm. I have a child mm-hmm. and I watch that child like discover things. And I know like right now that child doesn't know um, that the honking noise is me making a honking noise. The child thinks <laughs> that the honking noise is magic or something. The child is mm-hmm. oblivious. And I think this process of growing in your awareness of the world around you is a very, like it's part of childhood and Harper Lee manages to kind of replicate that this point of view obliviousness really, really well with this understatement that I'm talking about. Yeah. It's just a quick side note. It's also one of the things that I think makes this book a little challenging to teach to like freshmen in high school, for example, because like so much of it is between the lines. So much of it is not overtly happening on the page. Um, I, I, I'm actually finishing this book right now with my English nine class. We teach it every year to ninth graders. And, um, I asked them a question today that uh, exactly what Ian's talking about, right? Where I said, Hey, here's this climactic moment in the book. Can you explain to me what happened here or who did what? And it's right. shocking how many students are just like, uh, oh, that's cause that's cause they didn't read the book. Joe. Well, that's, I mean, that's a big part. <laughs> it's of true. It. That is possible. <laughs> it's really hard to pick up on things when you don't fucking read it. Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> in fact, sometimes with To Kill a Mockingbird specifically, you know, which students didn't yep. read and yep. instead yep. read and instead read spark notes because the ones who read spark notes are better at it <laughs> like the ones who read the book are like That's i don't awesome. really understand the ones who read spark notes are like i know exactly what is happening <laughs> the author's intent in this scene <laughs> okay billy that's a really nice segue to my last point that i want to make and this is a, a bit of a controversial take perhaps because a lot of us encounter this book in school um here's my take i think this is a book written from a kid's perspective but it is not a children's book. I think this is a novel written for adults and perhaps best friends, best understood by adults. So it, it like, like, like we're saying it's really complex narratively. I think the themes and the messages are really, really challenging. Some of the characterizations are very, very deft. I think it's been slotted as a children's book or a, maybe a young adult book because it's got a child point of view Right. But I think it works better like as an adult reading it. Yeah, well right. And like my wife always tells me how she read Animal Farm, right? Like she read Animal Farm in something like Sounds sixth like a nice grade. Kid's book. Yeah, like she read it in sixth grade. And I was like, that feels wildly misplaced in like for a sixth grade <laughs> classroom. <laughs> is it because it was about or, or Lord of the Flies? Lord of the Flies <laughs> yeah. is another one. Like it's got kids in it. It must be a kid, yeah. but like, no, 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 <laughs> no, it's horrible. It's there horrible. aren't even drawings. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and Nick, I do need to share this book does not have pictures, <laughs> but you don't have another option today. So right. Shoot. Sorry. All right. I think I'm done talking about this book. All right. <laughs> If you enjoyed this and if you like hearing us every week talk just nonsense about books that you love or hate, um, feel free to submit a book of your own. Uh, you, the best way to do that is you don't know litpodcast.com. There's a form there to submit a book and we, um, you can make one of us read it. <laughs> this is from one of the books, sort of climactic moments. Um, and it's a, it's a speech that... Um, a speech that kind of became becomes famous um, because of the movie uh, as well, just the whole courtroom scene. 
Um, this is uh, Scout's father, Atticus, is defending um, a black man who is accused of raping a white woman. And over the course of the over the course of the trial, it becomes clear like this is this is not what happened. Um, this is this is a uh, a contravention of justice. But it's a, it's a white jury, 1935 Alabama, and this is his closing statement. He says, "One more thing, gentlemen, before I quit." Thomas Jefferson once said that all men are created equal, a phrase that the Yankees and the distaff side of the executive branch in Washington are fond of hurling at us. There is a tendency in this year of grace, 1935, for certain people to use this phrase out of context to satisfy all conditions. The most ridiculous example I can think of is that the people who run public education promote the stupid and idle along with the industrious. Because all men are created equal, educators will gravely tell you, the children left behind suffer terrible feelings of inferiority. We know all men are not created equal in the sense that some people would have us believe. Some people are smarter than others. Some people have more opportunity because they're born with it. Some men make more money than others. Some ladies make better cakes than others. Some people are born gifted beyond the normal scope of most men. But there is one way in this country in which all men are created equal. There is one human institution that makes a pauper the equal of a Rockefeller, the stupid man the equal of an Einstein, and the ignorant man the equal of any college president. That institution, gentlemen, is a court. It can be the Supreme Court of the United States, or the humblest JP court in the land, or this honorable court which you serve. Our courts have their faults, as does any human institution. But in this country, our courts are the great levelers. And in our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to, to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and in the jury system. That is no ideal to me, gentlemen. It is a living, working reality. A court is no better than each man of you sitting before me on this jury. A court is only as sound as its jury. And a jury is only as sound as the men who make it up. I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence you have heard. Come to a decision and restore this defendant to his family. In the name of God, do your duty. Atticus's voice had dropped, and as he turned away from the jury, he said something I did not catch. He said it more to himself than to the court. I punched Jem. What did he say? In the name of God, believe him. I think that's what he said. Classic kids book. Classic kids book. <laughs> <laughs>